After 7 p.m., it's our wrap of the top business stories, and uh, we kick things off with that tonight. Makwe Maselela, founder and chief investment officer at Makwe Fund Managers, is my guest tonight. Makwe Gunjan. Ah, so far as you keep. Oh, so far as you keep on my own journey. Ah, oh, 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 and uh, yeah, I guess uh, one Mr. Van Collar used to work for them. And I remember at the time he just started at EOH and he'd just come, you know, to do an interview. Uh, but, uh, you know, the broadcast was happening at the Business App of the Year Awards. And uh, I remember cut a very lonely figure because a lot of people were saying, why do you leave such a great innings out at MTN and then go to an EOH that is finding itself at the center, in the middle, and in the throes of state capture. Uh, and that was four years ago, and it seems uh, for us to speak today of uh, EOH turning a profit and even being a prospect uh, or even an acquisition target, I think uh, is something we'd n- we certainly wouldn't have thought of uh, around 2018, 2019. Definitely, the guys had very serious problems. And as you remember, it's all when we started with that whole thing with the Microsoft licenses. And then from there, everything started to unfold. Then we had the state capture issues mm. and the whole thing about corruption. But the guy was very adamant that they're going to turn around the company. They're going to sell whatever that needs to be sold. And I think if we are not mistaken, so far they've sold almost 80 entities. In a period of 30 months, the guys have managed to reduce their debt from almost 4.1 billion to now almost 1.65 billion. Yes, we know the market value of the company is just a mere 978 million or so, just under a billion. But so far, I think they have managed to do a selling job. Yes, the share price doesn't reflect that because they still have this dark cloud. Because mm. it's all well and good, you know, to reduce your debt by selling some assets. But at the end of the day, we need to see some organic growth. We need to see that you guys are generating cash from operations. So they still have to prove that part, I guess, so that at least the share price as well can start to be more reflective more than anything. And as I'm saying, we have to give him the credit. And I think he also laid some criminal charges also against the guy trying to sue the former executives almost six billion rents or so. I mean, that's almost six times the market value of the company as it is. Mm. That's almost, you know, four times or so what the, I mean, the company has as its debt. So whether they'll be successful around that, but selling is one of the options. The guys have not been approached. Mm. They've not been targeted. So they can still come with another way to unlock value. But if I was him, I will just finish the last year or so and say, guys, here I am. I've done my part. Can I just move on? So, can so we wait, get Mark, maybe somebody else to mm. take the company forward? Mark, wait, I mean, before, you know, these guys sold 80, nearly 80 operating entities, right? And I'm quite interested. I mean, you say this is the 900 million rand or so entity right by value how big yeah, was eoh say circa 2015 um how from a, how big were they i mean what, what was their market capitalization or value at around 2015 or so so far the share price i think it's done by almost 86 
percent. It's another ten half of Tonga, if you like. It. Yeah. Sure. So it dropped a big, big time. You know, from I mean, down almost eighty-six percent the share price during the period. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mm-hmm. guess just for the benefit of some of our listeners who might not be familiar with these guys, what do these guys do, uh, and why were they embroiled in a lot of the public sector stuff insofar as state capture is concerned? The guys are more into your IT space more than anything, mm. and their main customers continue to be the government. I mean, they did a lot of work with the compensation fund, you know, the Department of Labor, Foreign Affairs to some extent. So what they were doing, they will be surprised why the guys managed to sell 80 ATTs. The guys will go out, I will open up something and niche company doing some part of IT. They will acquire you, you know, mm. and then go with you to tender for whatever government job that you might be tendering. So the guys who are acquiring all these companies, that's how they've managed to go to that extent. And also, remember, I think the big one that people might remember, they bought the the public sector arm of Siemens, you know, they acquired that as well as EOH. And by then, Siemens was doing some work, I think, for the Department of Home Affairs or Compensation Fund. So that's how they used to operate. And hence, they ended up with so many entities. Hence, the guys could easily be embroiled in tender corruption because they were doing mainly government work. And then I know to some extent they did some work with ESCOM, I think, something of that sort. But that's how the guys have been operating. And we know we've got some cabinet ministers or deputy ministers who are also involved or been mentioned mm. that they did benefit from the likes of your age. But basically that's what the guys have been doing. Yeah, you're so diplomatic. I mean, the person you're referring to <laughs> is Zizi Godpa. <laughs> Yeah. Deploy, deploy, it's there in the Zondo me, Commission you know, report. I mean, me no, but it's there in the Zondo Commission report. Why? why you, some deputy ministers. Uh, no, Marco, no, 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 no. It's out in the public domain. <laughs> Marco, I mean, let's shift away from EOH for a second. I was saying to my colleagues here uh, that, yeah. uh, you know, Petrus Mutsepe, I National Spire is on another level. Um, I mean, this tie-up between Sunlam and Alliance, what has Patrice Mutsepe got to do with that and uh, why is it so big a transaction uh, that it certainly, I guess, um, got uh, quite the attention of many in the marketplace? <laughs> you are right. And by the way, Patrick is the president of KEF, you know. So the guys are capturing... Uh, president of Africa, please. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yes, this is Africa's largest insurer, which is Sunlam. That make uh, teaming up with Europe's largest insurer alliance, which has mm. been in Africa apparently for almost hundred years. Now, as it is, the guys have decided to say, "Listen, let's put together our African assets, but with Sunlam, you exclude your South African asset." And now, the guys, at least as we know, that alliance itself already operates in eleven countries, and I'm not too sure that I'm convinced. And I'll tell you why the guys have been operating in Africa for 100 years. And all in all, around the world, they've got 126 million plants. But in Africa, I only have 2 million plants. For me, they've not done well in Africa, in my opinion. Salam mm. operates in almost 20 different countries in Africa. So the guys are tying up. And I so wish that this an African huge financial services company which will have a market value of assets worth around 33 billion. It 
would have been nice if it could have been Africa to Africa, you know. Our Sanlam matching up with some Ugandan or Kenyan insurance companies say, let's capture our continent mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the fact of the matter is that those two are now competing seriously into Africa. And apparently, in most of the markets that they'll be operating in, they'll be more or less the 30 biggest, sure. you know. Mm-hmm. But hence, it is a big deal for the market and Salam apparently will own 60% of the JV and then with mm. the guys, other guys owning 40 but they've got an option to increase it to 49 and they've got into this long-term JV and I find it very strange, you know, when it comes to a JV, you call it long-term and it's a maximum of at least 10 years. I thought the guys should be talking 15, 20 years, that kind of a situation. But basically, the guys are teaming up and I, I think it's also a good strategy. Sometimes you don't have to be competing. Mm. We can work together, you know, to be able to achieve something. But yeah, like I said, pickups for, for some you know, Mark, you raised something so interesting on this point that it would have been nice if this was Sunlam and, say, another insurer on the continent. Um, and interestingly, I mean, as you said that, I thought, but what if this means an opportunity for this particular pan-African joint venture to springboard into new non-African markets? So because Alliance would have, uh, you know, presence there. But then I think about how some of Sunlam's assets in places like Asia and other parts outside of the continent are not part of this deal. I mean, so clearly this is just a pan-African play with very, very little prospect of um, using this as a springboard, for instance, of getting Sunlam, some of its products, some of its distribution channels into Europe, Latin America, and uh, even North America in some cases. Yeah, because the likes of India are also not included in this whole thing. Mm. So it's just focusing on the continent. Hence, I'm saying, and I agree, that this could have been nicer if it was Africa to Africa, you know, that let's capture this, you know, as both uh, African companies. But you are right. Everyone recognizes that Africa is the last frontier. That is why it made sense for the likes of MTN to get out of other continents and say we're going to be focusing on Africa itself and we can see the money that's starting to print in on their likes of Uganda, Nigeria, you mm. name it, whether you suspend some of their subscribers, the guys continue to make good money. And by the way, Salam has partnered with MTN, you know, as a distribution channel in Africa as well. So this JV, does it have legs to, to run on? Definitely it does. Will the guys be able to make good money out of this whole thing? I mean, we are talking about the two experienced companies who understand the market, mm. who understand how to make the product. That's a good deal for them, I think, going forward. And I think shareholders should be happy that at least we are getting into Africa in a different way. I have got stories back home that our South African companies get involved in Africa. They bend their fingers, they come back home, you know. But now, Salam has just adopted another way. That yes, we got exposed ourselves without any partners, but now here we are teaming up with another big brother. So mm. definitely we're going to spoil or yeah. share the risk of as much as we'll share the upside. Mm. You know, one of the other things I was saying, Markwe, um, and I think you make a very important point there. Many South African corporations come back with their tail between their legs when they go and try and invest on the continent. But I think in many ways, this is a very particular type of company. I mean, started in 1918, Samdam was very much, you know, Africana type of mutual aid, Stockfell, Mohodisan, Mbuto type thing. Um, and effectively grew into a 
big financial services player during apartheid and even in the early democratic period servicing just the africana middle layer i mean if i think about it then uh, and since their tie up with ubuntu butu um this has not only meant their foray into you know the black consumer market in particular the african consumer market in south africa but now a further springboard into you know the continent beyond uh, south africa and some of the markets where they would have operated on the continent i mean even that i guess in its uh, what 100 and uh, what's it 104 year history uh, is something yeah. is something uh, worth uh, worth noting definitely and it just shows you that as much as we want to compete with the big boys you have to start somewhere grow yourself as much as you are talking about salam how it started you know be innovative get opportunities you know that's how we expand you know and you don't have to remain as small as you are and the very same thing that you are saying with salam it can be said about other companies to see that today they are the big players and they just started small yes i know it's not right to mention the likes of sibani for the fact that they don't want to pay our brothers mm-hmm. but they also started that small now the guys are growing into a global diversified mining company and also the question of guys believing in the vision getting the right people to drive this whole thing and what you said about them believing mainly the african uh, mm. people it just shows you that guys there's nothing wrong in supporting each other as long as you're giving us a good product and yeah. a good service but you see Michael, but you see When we talk about Sanlam, I mean I don't want us to leave the impression that somebody listening to us in Sibukeng can start the Amogodi Sano and will be as big as Sanlam one day without talking about how Sanlam did it. I mean a big part of why Sanlam got to where it got to is because of the type of very BE like uh, approach that uh, was taken on by the uh, National Party government. Um, and so in many ways I guess it got that big enough for the Mutsepes and others to acquire it. Uh, because of that political sort of commercial interface ah yeah reality is number one government continues to be the biggest consumer sure. the biggest the biggest spend number two people didn't just have lobby group for nothing Alala. you need the lobby groups to lobby government sure. when it comes to policies that it starts with you those things are very critical you need to constantly continue to lobby so with us with the current situation whatever sector you're operating in you need those lobby groups you need to show those policy makers that mm. this is this are the kind of policies that you have to make to be able to benefit us and now unfortunately in this instance we are fighting with the other guys probably and fighting not in a bad way but we are in competition with other people who don't want to change the status quo mm. so your lobbying have to be doubled up Unlike the likes of Salam, when they were lobbying then, it was only them lobbying. You know, here, you are trying to get a stake or a share of the market from the guys who are currently operating. So it's very critical. Sure. You don't have to shy away from it, that we need the government of support. We need to lobby going forward, and the government as well. They have to understand. Hence, people will always say this thing. Which doesn't sit well with most of our senior public officials. That guys, you are running a huge department, but you don't have subject matter specialists. Mm. Who are? Ah, yeah, you get a minister of 
I don't know, whatever department you call it. <laughs> that minister is still expecting that. They say, no, 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 they're there to show some leadership. <laughs> the minister go and appoint a DG. I and they appoint someone that they know. Aya goes and appoint Marco. Marco is not subject to specialist when it comes to that particular department. Marco goes and appoint a, a DG. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Before that, the deputy, sure. what is the deputy teacher? Because now he needs to surround himself with people that maybe he can trust. They go and operate the chief operations officer. In most departments, you'll find that the three, four top layers, those people are not subject matter specialists. Mm. And you Only know, when you get yeah, to a lower yeah. level, maybe you're a director. So, and I'm not saying it's with every department, but most departments, they don't have that. Other departments, they have those kind of people in place. Mm. You know, Mark, and I guess, uh, you know, the, the reason why we're having this discussion, I like the point you were making earlier on around lobbying, uh, is that at some stage, we need to teach ourselves, um, in particular those who, you know, speak on behalf of black business and all of those types of things, to realize that a lot of the history of the advance of any group in any society is linked to this process and uh, I guess whatever rents might come out of the policy process. And I think a lot of people, you know, sometimes battle with that particular notion. But let's leave that one for a second, Mark, and uh, take a look at uh, yeah some of the remarks that were made by former finance minister, Titomboweni, uh, known by many, not only just to cook a, a very, very, you know, uh, mean <laughs> stew or be a chicken stew or lamb stew, very mean stuff, uh, but uh, also somebody known to shoot from the hip. And uh, a lot of what he has said of late is that we can talk until the cows come home about a lot of things, but uh, none of um, the basic income grant or any other things are going to be sustainable unless we fix the basics and we, first of all, fix our municipalities. I, I, I think it's on point, you know, what he's saying. And he, it makes a lot of sense, but it becomes controversial coming from someone who has at some point, had an opportunity to right? do something. And he's sitting with the purse strings. You know, National Treasury, for some of the worst performing municipalities, is effectively the blesser. I mean, it's, it's effectively the people that are giving most of the money. Equitable share, conditional grants, exactly. transfer. He, <sighs> he, had, he had an opportunity, and we agree with what he's saying. So now you start asking yourself that, uh, is this a typical case of the state bank thing? You remember he spoke about the state bank. Exactly. He went into but power. when he when it was his head and he was in the position <laughs> to push that, uh, you know, and maybe me and you don't understand maybe the dynamics of running a department. That hey, maybe you get to be oppressed or constrained by other things. Other things it's easy for you to say them outside, mm. but when it comes to implementation, because of the processes that you have to follow being in government, it makes your life difficult. Yeah, Maybe we should yeah. give him that benefit of a doubt. But yet, what is raising people for it have to come here and invest? Ah, it's no longer thing to expect. Mm. We are now competing with our African brothers yeah. and now trying to fight for that rent with other countries in the continent. Mm. Unlike before, that South Africa used to be seen as and uh, 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 in a way to Africa itself. Yeah. People can easily go straight and set up in Kenya, Rwanda, you name it. So we have to make sure that we also have to attract the mm-hmm. investments. Not How the curious. How like cu- the right yeah. investments. Yeah, yeah. And, and I like the point you just made there around the right investments. And I'll come back to that. But how curious is it that 
just 30 seconds ago, uh, one of the tweets coming through from Minister Mboweni saying he's at his favorite Indian curry restaurant and he's put a picture up there saying, watch how they slice the peppers. Same WhatsApp group. And uh, I guess going back, uh, yeah, maybe he's getting some lessons there. Uh, there's a picture there with rice, curry, that type of thing. But let me come back to, to some of the remarks he was making. Because it doesn't only raise the issue of municipalities, but it also raises the challenge of ESCOM. Uh, And one of the things I find very interesting about that is that, you know, he probably didn't make the explicit connection. But it's quite clear, I mean, if if one does the analysis over the last five years, that a big part of the pool of resources that have been available to undertake necessary routine and even additional maintenance on a very old fleet have also declined in proportion to the growing arrears by municipalities. So the fact that municipalities, one, you know, get the right to distribute and collect the money, but don't pay that money over for bulk purchases of electricity has also meant in some cases that the pool of money from which ESCOM can draw from to maintain the fleet and to do all of those things has also declined. It, is that a generous or too generous an assessment, Mark, where, you know, uh, if, if one makes that that type of analysis? I, I think, you know, what you're just saying, your analysis you're just put on, you know, and I think, now we need to understand when they say people don't have a political will. Aya, we know what is right, what is wrong, we know what needs to be done. Aya, the department, the ministers, the policymakers, they know exactly what needs to be done. It's not about me and you giving them a report. Mm. They've got access to top reports from your professors of this world. Maybe people need to understand that human sciences cancer is government entity. Oh, your serious government entity, that one. Human Sciences Look, Research Council. No CSIR. Papa, you've got professors there. Serious you've got operations. Doctors, you've got senior researchers. Mm. You've got state-owned universities. They write reports, stuff like that. So we just lack the political will or whatever it is called to implement. We know what is right. We know what needs to be done to fix ESCOM or DNL or you name it or our economy. But you ask yourself that why don't we implement it so we can make noise as much as we uh, know. Guys know what is right and what is wrong. On the same issue, it seems now, hey, you know, three-way gunfight is probably not the type of fight you want to go into with a knife, right? Um, <laughs> now you've got uh, a group here that is running a small gas operation out in Lindbrook Park, which is wanting <laughs> distribution rights. You've got <laughs> ESCOM who's saying... you. But municipalities, you have distribution rights and other groups, but you don't pay the money over uh, when you buy electricity from us. Then you've got local government via Salga, like local authorities, who are saying, Tina, we refuse for the gas guys to get this license because we feel if we have a distribution right, we must have that as a monopoly. Uh, And one of the interesting things about ESCOM is that it wasn't always the case that ESCOM provides directly the majority of um, electricity. I mean, pre-1992, I think, you know, you probably had a massively higher number of municipalities with distribution licenses and rights to sell electricity to the final consumer than what you do now. Um, And I'm going to be a bit controversial here, but I don't think, Markwe, that uh, municipalities that don't maintain, you know, their... Uh, transmission and generate well transmission and distribution infrastructure don't uh, invest in repairing or maintaining it should have a right to distribute electricity to firms and to households um, and that's just my own view but uh, what are some of your thoughts on this uh, because now it's no longer just escom and the municipalities but there's now the introduction of ipps which complicates the picture 
I mean, I, 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 I'm a bit confused. I don't know what ESCOM is talking about. On a simple matter, to say, ESCOM cannot have the guts to say, we can or we have the capacity to supply. They cannot have that in one sentence. They're not capable to supply. Whether it's no shading, whether it's mm. faulty stuff, just look at the comments that we just got today from their chief operation officer that we need to accept that the infrastructure is just so old and it's not reliable. So after you have said that, how do you insist and say you want to supply me if I'm coming with an alternative? It's all a question of your worried about that rent that you should be making out of me as a consumer. We're not worried about me as a citizen. And remember, for any state to create a monopoly area is to make sure that those kind of services get to be offered to people at reasonable prices, not for a monopoly to make super profit. But ESCOM now is at the point where they've got these huge debts, you know, mm. hanging over them. They try to make every cent where they can, which is not right. If I'm coming with an alternative, because you cannot, it has been proven over time. Yeah. We don't even have to talk about the breakdown, yeah, stuff like that. Exactly. Let alone even how cheap it is. I mean, they said to those guys, if it's true that if they use the diesel generators, mm. it's going to cost almost 550 If you use the gas, it's going to cost anything between 250 and 350 Who are settling for that? If you talk about the solar stuff like mm. that, I think it's much cheaper, 70 cents to 100 Guys, the cost of living is just too high. We just yeah. need to save whatever or whatever that needs to be saved. Right, Namako, we squander we squander monopoly positions. I mean, how do you when you've had the softest landing for decades as a state owned monopoly and you say, you know what, we want to go to court and defend any regulatory change that might influence mon- the monopolistic conditions under which we operate. And let's leave aside I mean, leave aside the fact that yeah, Eskom Kreshabound, I mean we can have that debate, right? But the fact that you squander a monopoly position. Exactly. Hi guys, no ways. And don't tell me about regulations, because the regulations have been changed before. Our regulations didn't uh, have provision for IPPs before. Yeah, it yeah. has just now been changed that people who produce or generate a certain amount, they don't have to apply for a license. So this is well, you can uh, uh, change. We are not saying it must not be regulated. Regulate them, mm. put new regulations in place. So that at least it's something which is controlled, the market which is controlled, and it doesn't get to manipulate or uh, 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 what you call it, take advantage of consumers. Hi, Makwe. Let's leave it there, man. I, I don't know, man. Like what, what Good night. Good night. Salagushi, Makwe. Yo! 20 minutes it is before 8 p.m. In the next few minutes or so, in our headline segment, we ask ourselves in Gabia Salana. Uh, this weekend. Ongamam Timka is my guest. Uh, he's a political analyst at uh, Nelson Mandela University. I speak to him 